Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture passage today comes from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. It can be found on page 602 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. You stretched them out. You spread out the earth and what comes from it. You are all powerful. And at the same time, you take us by the hand and you keep us. Lord, will you take us by the hand even now as we sit under your word, as we learn from it? Lord, I pray that, that Chris would be a mouthpiece of your grace and mercy as he proclaims the truth of your word and that we, your people, would be hearers and doers of the word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. I know that for some of you, you've arrived and you say, am I in the right place, right? Uh, for those of you who work with satellites, I don't think we're violating any non-disclosure agreements with advanced technology that we have. Uh, displayed here on the platform. In some ways, when we drop in in the middle of a book like Isaiah, we might feel like uh, coming here and seeing all of uh, this decoration on the platform. We may feel a little disoriented, a little out of place. We may ask ourselves uh, exactly what's going on in this context. And so let's set it up. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has been dealing with two primary concerns. The first in chapter 1 through 39 is the concern of the rise of Assyria. Uh, we have been looking at that and, and what God was going to do for the people of God and what he was going to do to the people of God through Assyria. From chapter 40 and following, Isaiah moves from his present context there in the 7th century BC and the concern with the present superpower of Assyria, and he begins to look into the future. 
and what God was going to do through another superpower that would rise up and supplant Assyria, the empire of Babylon. And so we are in the middle of a section as the people of God are caught between these two great crises, between the domination and desolation that the Assyrians brought and through the future deportation and exile that the Babylonians will bring, and this paralyzed our sins. And, and in that context, when you know that it is perilous times and that there are perilous times coming, then you need a word of hope. Or at least God knows we need a word of hope. And so he gives it. Here in Isaiah chapter 42, he gives a word of hope. Now, I want us to remember that context because as soon as we begin to read these words, if you are familiar with the writing of the New Testament, you say, wait, this is talking about Jesus. And, and I'm glad that many of you know that. The people Isaiah wrote to did not know that. They just knew that God was going to bring a unique individual in the future that's described as a servant, and we're going to look at part of what that servant will do here in this text, and we'll see others in the future. But they know that no matter how bad it gets, that God won't forget them, that God will take care of them, and that at some point in the future, God will bring a special servant to do amazing things for the people of God. Now, I bring that up because we want to understand the context. We don't want to just jump right to the New Testament. We want to preach and people who have trouble on the horizon. And as well, we want to understand that in this context, in chapter 41, what God had just declared through Isaiah was that the idols we make up for ourselves, those things we worship which truly are not gods, not only cannot explain the past, but certainly can't give any guarantees about the future. So here in this text, when God begins through Isaiah to explain the security of the future of the people of God through this servant who will come, he is doing what no idol can do, is to assure you that not only that God will take care of you now, but God will take care of you in the future. And as we know, God will take care of us for all eternity. And so that's the context. But let's look at what he says about this servant. We're going to look at it under three headings. Uh, they all begin with M, which will make it easy to outline. So we're going to look at the mission of the servant. We're going to look at the methodology of the servant. And lastly, we are going to look at the mediation of the servant because we see these things in the text. So the mission, uh, the methodology, and finally the mediation. That I, sometimes pastors give you the three points because when you hear the third one come out, you know it's almost over. In case those of you who don't take notes, I'm helping you. This is why you pay attention when he says what the outline is. Of course, just side note, sometimes that third point is twice as long as the other two combined. So you never know. But first of all, so that you're trying to help y'all. There's some who are new to this church thing. I'm trying to give you hints so that you can enjoy the experience. But first of all, we want to see the mission of the servant. We see that there in verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. 
Isn't this interesting? God describes this servant, and he says, this is one in whom my soul delights. Now, this is a contrast. If we were to read through the book of Isaiah, we'll see someone else called the servant of the Lord, and that is the people of God. But the people of God have not been a delight to God. They have actually been a difficulty for God because they have disobeyed him. They have rebelled against him. They have worshiped idols instead of the one and true God. The servant Israel has failed in their service to God Almighty. But God here talks about an individual, one who, unlike the nation of Israel, will come and do what God requires and be a delight to God. Now, of course, here's where we make the jump. Uh, you see that after he's baptized, he comes up out of the water. And in Matthew 3, uh, 16 and following, it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom... I am well pleased. Now, the first half of that voice, that statement that God makes from heaven, uh, behold, this is my beloved son, comes from Psalm chapter 2. The second half comes from our text this morning. It comes from chapter 1 and Isaiah 42. With him, I am well pleased. In this, God is letting us know right there at the beginning of your New Testament who this servant is. It is the one who's baptized by John. It is the one whose name is Jesus, which means that God saves. But we want to know more than just who it is. We want to know what his mission is. And I know that as soon as you read that last line of verse 1, some of you got a little nervous. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, why would that make you nervous? And three, it's because when people talk about justice... In the church, in 2023, there people get nervous. They're like, okay, is this going to be one of those social justice sermons? See, I've triggered all of you right there. You know, and the answer is yes and no. It's going to be about universal justice. You see, we have to think and notice that it is not just one verse that says that. In the next verse, uh, or in verse 3, he says, he will faithfully bring forth justice. In verse 4, he says, he will not grow faint or discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. There's no getting away from the fact that this servant's mission is to bring justice. But we need to ask the question, what does justice mean? Now, the word justice there, it, if you read it in Hebrew, it looks like mispat, but most people pronounce it mishpat. And it is a word that certainly includes the idea of retributive justice, that is, righting wrongs, but it's much broader than that. If you were to take the biblical idea of justice, it is often compared to righteousness. It's paired with it. So often you see mispot with the word uh, for righteousness. Its antonym, or the opposite of justice, is chaos, which actually starts to get us the idea of the full range of meaning of this word for justice. Justice ultimately means to put things into right order. So, of course, retributive justice is righting wrongs. It is making sure that the wrongdoer is punished and that the righteous is rewarded. That is part of putting things in order, but it's just a part of it. 
Justice is making things in this world the way they are supposed to be. Now, question, when did things in this world fall out of order? When did they get messed up? Well, I appreciate uh, Pastor Tim Keller who, uh, praise God, is with Jesus now but has left us a lot of great material. Pastor from New York City. Uh, And his comments on Isaiah chapter 42, he said, we really do have to go back to Genesis chapter 3 to see how the world got disordered. You see, because in Genesis 1 and 2, God created a perfectly ordered world. Everything and everyone was exactly where they were supposed to be, doing exactly what they had been designed to do. But then Genesis 3 happened. And humanity decided, after the temptation of the evil one, that they would prefer to be their own authorities and to depend upon their own uh, insight and wisdom instead of God's clear commandment. And they did the opposite of what God had commanded. They ate from the tree that was at the center of the garden. And when they did, the Bible tells us their eyes were open and they knew good and evil. Why did they know it in a special way? Because they had become evil. Because they had fallen from the original righteousness. Did things fall out of order? Well, you really do see it beautifully in the fall. First of all, the order that God established that he would be in perfect relationship with humanity immediately was affected. Instead of running to God, humanity hid from God. Uh, They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. They immediately realized with themselves was broken. They immediately experienced shame. We see it in, uh, you know, because originally they were naked and unashamed. And now they are ashamed and hiding behind the fig leaves. Their own relationship with themselves was broken. They were out of order. Their relationship with each other fell immediately out of order. Think about it. God came and said, who told you you were naked? And the blame game begins. It still goes on in relationships everywhere. You know, it's not my fault, it's their fault. You know, it's not my fault, it's that woman you gave me, which is kind of hinting that it's God's fault. Uh, So it's things have gone from right order to wrong order, just like that. And lastly, of course, their relationship with the created world completely falls apart. Now the ground will, take, will, will produce thorns and thistles, and it will only be by the sweat of the brow that they're able to get the fruit of the land. Or even having children, which was part of what God had commanded humanity to do, will now come with pain and toil. It all has gone from order to disorder. So whenever we hear that this servant will come and bring justice, we need to stand up and shout as we already have done in worship. Because it is about taking every single thing that is disordered and putting it back right again. That is the broad biblical idea of justice. In many ways, it is similar, if not almost identical, to the broad idea of shalom. That things are the way they should be. That we are at peace with God, ourselves, each other, and this world. That is what the servant has come to do. 
Isn't that encouraging? I think too often, especially uh, those who are a little bit more conservative perhaps in their worldview, they hear the word justice and they immediately recoil. And we say, oh, I don't want to talk about justice. You don't want to talk about things being the way they should be? That's all you talk about. That's all we think about. You know, why do we gripe and complain? Why do we post nasty things on the internet? Because we are surrounded by things that aren't the way they're supposed to be. Do you know what we need? The servant who brings a right order in this world. And of course, if you believe in him, he has begun that process in your own heart. As he has made you right with God. We're going to talk about it more. Which enables you through his spirit to begin to live in the right order with other people. And with yourself. And one day he'll restore right order in all of creation. Oh, what a glorious truth. The mission of the servant should be precious to us in every way. But secondly, and surprisingly, let's look at the method of the servant. The methodology of the servant. This is where we're a little surprised. Verse 2. He will not cry out aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. What is that saying? Crying, crying out is raising your voice. Now, I, I, it was pointed out to me early and often as a child that I never not raised my voice, right? Do you, does anybody remember the inside voice? I, I never found my inside voice, you know, which was tough when Karen and I were dating. You know, instead of whispering sweet nothings in her ear, it was more like, I love you and think you're great. Here it says he's not going to draw attention to himself. He's not going to be shouting out this next expression. Here this says he's not going to lift up his voice. Is He's not going to fight to dominate the conversation. Wait a second. Isn't that how you accomplish things? If you have a mission to make things right, don't you have to scream people down? Don't you have to be rude in society? I mean, don't you have to cut people to the quick? Well, it's certainly not his methodology. He says he won't cry loud. He won't lift up his voice. He won't make it heard in the street. In other words, he's not vying for attention. Believe it or not, and I know that there are Christians who will say different. They're just wrong. Jesus would not be a social media influencer if he came back today. Because he's not trying to draw likes to himself. That's not his methodology. That's what this text tells us. Which, of course, we think, how in the world will he be successful at the mission to put everything right and then in the order it should be if he's not loud and obnoxious? As a matter of fact, it goes on to tell us that indeed he will be gentle. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. And a bruised reed is a reed that has had a critical injury. It's all but broken. Its productive life is over. Or secondly, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You know, when you blow out a candle and it's still just smoking, it has no more fire. He says, yeah, he's not going to do that cool thing guys do where they just stick their fingers on it and snuff it out. I cannot do that. My fingers are too sensitive, right? It's like, no, the thing that's almost out, he's not going to hurry along. The thing that's bruised, he is not going to break. And that tells us about his methodology What does that mean, first of all? It means that he is not going to come. This servant will not come aggressively, but gently. He will not come aggressively, but gently. We actually see this. If we go and look at the story of Jesus in Matthew uh, chapter 11, uh, 
Let's, where do we begin? Toward the end, a beautiful passage, uh, verse 28 will begin. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How does Jesus think of himself? Gentle, lowly. And he calls out to who? The bruised, those who are almost stuffed out, the weak, the weary. And this is the methodology of Jesus. He didn't have to be dominant. He didn't have to be the headliner. He didn't have to be number one in trending videos on the net. He was content being present with people who were hurting and whose light had almost gone out. He was willing to be patient and gentle. It is fascinating. This is his methodology we see in the very next chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 12. It is, uh, it is fascinating. Uh, whenever, uh, whenever people simply indicted that his gentle way was just too much, that his attempt to bring order in the world was simply intimidating and unwanted, uh, they, they sought to snuff him out, which is actually what our text actually uh, points to there in verse 4. It says, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. Literally, that's just using the same language about how he's going to treat others, about the things that are going to happen to him. That growing faint means being snuffed out. That uh, being discouraged means being bruised. It says, he won't be so bruised or so snuffed out that he won't accomplish his mission. And so whenever Jesus was facing persecution, it's interesting. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 15, it says he withdrew from there. and Many people followed him and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. Which always throws you if you're reading through the gospel accounts. Why did Jesus tell the people that he had restored right order in their physical life or in their spiritual life as he cast out demons? Why did he tell them not to tell anyone? Because he had the methodology of the servant of Isaiah chapter 42. He wasn't trying to gain a big giant following. He was trying to declare the justice of God having arrived where we live and eat and breathe and do all the other things we do. And it says in verse, My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Here, Matthew quotes from our passage. And he says this, the fact that Jesus is not drawing attention shows that he's fulfilling the methodology of the servant. He is not making a clamor. He is not making people pay attention to him. Isn't that interesting? Now let's ask the question. Would our current world recognize Jesus from the way people who claim to follow him act in the world? Is this anywhere close to our methodology that we have in our own testimony of our love for and, and following of Jesus Christ? Are we gentle? Are we lowly? 
Are we focused on those who are bruised to the point of breaking, who have been almost snuffed out by this world? Or are we attracted to the strong and the sleek and the mighty and the beautiful because ultimately we want to be the strongest and sleekest and mightiest and beautiful? Would the world see Jesus in the way we are seeking to continue his mission to bring a right order in this world? Sometimes, right? Not often. And why is that? Why is that? How could the servant, how could Jesus not seek to gain a following? How could he do ministry in such a way that he told people, hey, look, don't go telling everybody about what I've done for you. And we can be such attention-grabbing, you know, attention-gravity people. Well, because he was filled with the Spirit And knew that God would accomplish his purposes perfectly through his obedience as he walked according to the plan God had ordained for him. I think often, I know I do, I'm just going to talk about me. I jump, I literally jump, sometimes jump up and down. And I get louder and I get more forceful and I get more determined because I'm determined to accomplish what I want to accomplish. I mean, let's be honest, Pastor Chris has a flesh problem. He operates according to the flesh far more often than he should and depends on the power of the Spirit working in him far less than he should. I mean, really, y'all should find someone much better at that to lead you. The good news is we do have someone much better than that to lead us. We have Jesus And we look at his methodology, and we look at our methodology, and we compare and contrast. How much am I, in my own efforts, seeking to make my viewpoint, the thing most precious to me, my faith, known in this world, and how much am I following the methodology of the master, the great servant of our King and Lord, God Almighty, and trusting the Spirit, to work in and through me by proclaiming without shouting, without bullying, without a determination to get a following, the truth of Jesus Christ, the one who brings right order in this world. I don't know about you, but studying this text was convicting for me. I hope for some of you that it's convicting for you. We might have the right mission, but are we following the servant to look? Well, well. Uh, Yeah, we'll move on. Uh, Lastly, I want us to look at the mediation. Notice in verse 6. It says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. This is God talking to his servant. So in verse 1 through 4, God is talking about the servant. And verse 5 through 9, God is talking to the servant. And so here, God is talking to the servant. And he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. In other words, he can follow that methodology because God's going to be with him. God's going to take care of him. And so he doesn't need to have to, you know, defend himself or promote himself. God's going to take care of that. But then notice the second half of verse 6. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light 
to the nations. What does he mean? I will give you as a covenant to the people, for the people. What is a covenant? A covenant is an unbreakable promise that God makes. Oftentimes in the Bible, it is a unilateral uh, covenant. It is a unilateral agreement. In other words, God says, I will do this for you. Sometimes it's, it's bilateral, meaning that I will do this for you and you will do this for me. But in, in the Bible, often we see grace at work where God just says, I'm going to do this for you. I am agreeing. I am covenanting myself. I am promising on my own character that I will do this for you no matter what. I will do this for you no matter what. Whenever you go to a wedding, I've been to a couple lately, very beautiful weddings, very beautiful people. I'm very thankful to have been there. And whenever I have been there, they make a covenant with one another. They say, I vow that I will be faithful to you and you alone. And richer for poor, in sickness and health. Uh, you know, oh gosh, I have it written down somewhere. Uh, for better or for worse. Yeah, that's the rest of it, right? So help me God. And this is the covenant that I made. And what does that mean? That means no matter what you do, I will be faithful to you. That's what it's supposed to mean, you know, because it would be a really bad wedding. You know, if somebody said, I promise to be faithful and loving to you uh, for richer, but not for too much poor, and health, but not too much sickness, for better glories, I'm out. That would, nobody would pay any money for that wedding, would they? You know, I will love you as long as you satisfy me. Nobody's paying for that. Now we go there because we love this idea of a unilateral commitment. I am promising before God and these witnesses that I will be faithful to you no matter what. No matter what. That's an incredible thing. That is just a reflection of the covenant fidelity God has with us. So what does it mean... When God says, I will make you as a covenant for the people, that means, uh, that means that he will be the servant, will be the mediator to enable people to be in an eternally committed relationship with God. God says, I am going to bring people into relationship with me through you, he says to the servant. Which is remarkable. For those of you who've studied covenant, you know that oftentimes covenant is sealed in blood. You go back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. And how did he make that covenant? He said, Abraham, here's the deal. I want you to take this variety of animals that would make a pretty decent barbecue. Uh, he could have had chicken wings. He could have had other things. But he said, I want you to cut them in half. You know, and, and, and Abraham knew what this meant. He, he, he knew that that meant that there was about to be a covenant between him and God. What he didn't know is that God was going to put him asleep. And in a vision, he was going to see God uh, demonstrated by this uh, smoldering uh, pot go through the pieces. God says, look, I'm the one making this covenant. And may I be split apart like these animals. May my blood be shed if I don't stay faithful to the covenant. So here when he says to this servant, I'll make you a covenant, what is he pointing to? He's pointing to a shedding of blood to enable people to have a relationship with him. He is pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ.
that servant who didn't cry out, didn't seek a following, who trusted the Spirit to talk about God making all things right in this world. At the end of his life, everything went wrong in his world. Out to him. Instead of being rewarded, he was slapped. Instead of being patted on the back, he had spit in his face. Instead of his life ending in blessing, it ended with thorns in his brow and nails through his hands and feet. Everything was disordered in his life. Why? Because part of the role of the servant was to be a covenant for the people. He experienced disorder so that we might finally be right with God, so that we can finally have the potential to be right with ourselves, the right with other people, and eventually see the right, the world made right in his second coming. That is the covenant. And what happens as a result of this mediation? I love it. Notice, this is what happens. There's light for the nations. In other words, instead of people who are outside of the current community of faith, you know, not knowing anything about who God is or how to have a relationship with him, because of the mediation of this servant, all of the world will have the opportunity to see the light of God so that they might respond to it and join that right order with what had historically only been a Jewish people experience. Notice he even hints at that back in verse 4. Until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. The coastlands can be interpreted, they're the islands, which means the furthest reach of the world. Guess what? Colorado is definitely in the furthest reach of the world. Right? I was just describing to some friends that we have visiting from out of town that Colorado, that where we live is a land island. You know, somebody told me that. I don't know if that's, you know. And what that means is that while we're not surrounded with water, even though the last month we have been, in general, we're not surrounded by water, but it takes hours to get anywhere else. So think about it. How far is it to the next big city from Denver and Colorado Springs? Minimum six hours. We're a land island. That's why everything costs more at King Supers. But anyway, it is what it is. But even people in Colorado will see the light of the glory of God. Isn't that amazing? And what does that light do? Literally open blind people's eyes. But this was a sign pointing to the reality that people could now see the love and grace of God that is for them through the servant who is a covenant for the people. It also says that he will bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. And so now through the mediation of this servant... We can proclaim that good news in all of the world, even as far as Colorado, you know, or the West or the world. And we can declare it. And we are helping people see truth about the right order of God. We are releasing them from the bondage they have to their false conceptions of how the world is ordered. We're enabling them to find true and lasting freedom. And lastly, notice I love it. Uh, in verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise uh, to carved idols. The servant, through his mediation, enables us to free people in this world to actually do what they were made to do. And you say, what's that? To reflect 
the glory of God. To see and reflect the glory of God. Oh, I love Isaiah 42. Isn't it beautiful? As it describes this servant. Now to the people who originally got it, there was a whole lot of trouble ahead of them. 125 to 150 years after Isaiah wrote these words, Jerusalem was sacked and the people were hauled off into captivity into Babylon. It would be 40 years before they were ever to see their homeland again. And after that, when they thought everything was fine, the Greeks came through and wiped everything out again. And just when they thought they had gotten out of that, the Romans came through and wiped everything out again. And why do I bring that up? Because this promise kept people going. They said one day God is going to bring that servant. One day he's going to bring that promise to fruition. One day he's going to bring the right order in this world. Justice will prevail. And we know that that project has begun. Because he has come. He has lived. He has died. He has risen from the dead. But I don't want us to forget that the anticipation of the crowd who originally read Isaiah 42 can be ours as well. Because folks, I don't know for certain, but I suspect there's an awful lot of trouble ahead of us as well. But we can wait with even more certainty than the people who originally read Isaiah 42 because we know the project is well underway. And one day, at the end of my life or at the end of this world, everything will finally be the way it was supposed to be. Every time we come to this table, we declare our hope in this servant who will surely lead us to that ultimate conclusion as surely as he's begun the process of right order in my life and in this world through his death on that cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. Lord, we're a people who need both hope about what you will do in the future and a dogged determination to keep our eyes on the servant, to see what he has done, to believe what he will do, to reflect his mission, his methodology, and to rejoice in his mediation even now. We pray, Lord, that you will give us grace to know and rejoice in him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.